I, I was thinking in terms of how we might kick this off. You know, we've known each other for a few years and actually it's kind of cool. One of the ways that we ran into each other, I want to say in April, was when this whole stimulus thing was going down. Um, and I, I wrote this post, uh, small businesses depend on the stimulus package. The stimulus package will depend on FinTech. In terms of just how do you get money from the government to, there are 30 million small businesses in the US. And many of them are just like sole proprietorships. Like they might file their own personal tax return and report their business earnings and whatnot on their Schedule C, but they're not really known to the government. Like there's no you know, master government database of, you know, build a plumber and uh, you know, how many plumbing fixtures he sold last week. So, you know, I was really concerned, as were you, that the way that this was happening was suboptimal because the way that it worked was, I mean, literally you'd go to the Treasury Department website or you'd go to the SBA website and you would say, okay, find a bank near me that can give me a, an emergency stimulus grant. You type in your zip code, it would give you no exaggeration, 58,000 results and phone numbers. And you'd call every bank and say, do you do this? And the answer would be no, or we're closed or come to the branch. And like, then you'd call the next one. And it was just kind of a disaster. Just because, you know, the government's job is not normally to give money to small businesses. And it was kind of fun riffing with you about this. And I think we were both on calls literally with the White House because they were trying to figure out how to do this as the executive branch in charge with uh, executing the disbursement of funds uh, from the CARES Act. So, you know, I, I don't think anybody thinks that this went well. I think it went better when companies like Square stepped in and even PayPal stepped in and said, okay, we, we actually have connections and pipes to millions of businesses, like let us do that and eventually um, the, the stimulus package was allowed to go through fintechs, which was great. But I think the point of the call today or the point of our little conversation now is like, did it work? Like we, we know that the money got to the businesses. We know that businesses were shut down in many respects because the government wanted to help public health. And obviously neither you nor I are, are health experts, but I think what everybody wants to know is did these measures that were passed by government actually help or work. And, you know, just given that you had amazing data at Square in terms of like, okay, sales at this, this restaurant were down by 90% of this state, you know, maybe only down by 20% in that state, correlation, not causation, but what were the disparate impacts, if any, on health, right? And obviously you can't compare Florida to California because Florida is hot and muggy and California is hot and dry. Like there's all sorts of other differences there, but I'd love to hear just kind of what you found in the small business credit card data amongst other things in terms of like, we know that, gov we know that government shut down businesses. We know that government kind of bumbled in many respects, helping businesses get stimulus aid, but like, did this help? Did it hurt? Is it neutral? Yeah. Like what, what data do we have? Yeah, let me start with this idea about like PPP in general and go back to that. And then to, we could talk about the data. I, PPP is, is in general, I'd say a government program that put a trillion dollars of capital in the hands of small businesses helped. But it was a really painful product construct. It was painful for Treasury. It was painful for the SBA. It was painful for the 5,000 banks that signed up to work in the program, particularly, you know, the new banks to the SBA who'd never worked with them, because the construct of the law was written in such a way that the original intention was keep employees on the payroll and then we'll make it a grant. And because there's no mass grant making program anywhere in the United States, it had to go through the SBA and the SBA does loans. They don't do grants. And so everything about the way the technology worked, the law was written, 
was convoluted and had to be reconstructed on the fly. And so, um, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for the folks who were working at Treasury and the SBA at the time on this particular program, because they were 24-7 trying to change the way money flew out the door, because they had no other solution at the time. And even if you think, could Treasury have just given the money to fintechs, I think one of the biggest challenge would have been, how do you deal with dupes, duplications? Yep. And so there was no means of federating, you know, one loan per business. And so it made the challenge incredibly daunting because businesses don't universally have EINs, employer ID numbers. Some have, in fact, many, 23 million have SSNs because they're sole proprietors. And so like that, you start there and then you say, all right, well, how do you keep people on payroll and how do you prove it? Like, I remember sitting with our team saying like, we're never going to be able to figure out how to do this. Like, how do we figure out who's on payroll? And like, do we actually as a company have to go prove it? And the proving in the context of the federal government was daunting. And so like you think about it, you're, you know, anyone, any fintech, I can't prove that they have employees on the payroll. Like what happens if they give me a payroll slip? If I'm on the hook for that, I don't want to issue that loan. If I'm on the hook to then have to go check every company's actual payroll. So the whole thing was, was really hard to deal with. Having said that, once it got written, and we were involved in helping to write some of it and making suggestions. And we were super involved in making guideline recommendations, which Treasury thankfully took. Um, we had a really good loop with um, the Treasury team. Um, like once that got written, you know, everyone dispersed the money as quickly as they could. And, you know, some of the problems that happened really early on were related to like old school bank regulations, like know your customer. Well, if you have know your customer laws, that means that big banks aren't going to lend to new businesses that they don't know. And that's what created the problem where really little businesses felt like they were being excluded. And so I don't think it was by malice. I think it was by this back and forth challenge of like, well, if you know you're trying to limit fraud and you have to prove know your customer, what do you do for all those businesses? And so it took, you know, a month or so to work some of the kinks out. And, and what we saw and what we were a part of, and I loved being a part of this, I think the team at Square Capital will remember this for their entire lives, the back and forth of finding a problem. And we'd hear it from like, oh my God, there's an oyster company in Long Island that called us and said that, you know, they can't do the following because of the forms on the SBA website. And we'd go look at it. We'd immediately realize there was a mistake in the way the law was written or the guidelines were written. And we would have our legal team highlight what the issue was and then make a suggestion so that Treasury could literally take the language and incorporate it into their guidelines. And I think they appreciated that help so that we were trying to, you know, basically take the smallest and most vulnerable businesses, surface their problems, and then make sure 
that, you know, the people literally writing the law who were up 24 seven could actually make the changes. And so, you know, I have more sympathy for the government in trying to execute this program than a lot because I know how hard it was to try to convolute a trillion dollars of money out the door in a way that was as safe as possible. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. So it wasn't it wasn't to blame the government. It's more of this isn't a function that government has ever had to do. The government ever. is in charge of collecting taxes. Sure, they send you a tax refund, but banks make loans. They don't make grants, exactly as you said. And for people in the audience that don't realize this, the SBA, they will make these emergency kind of like if there's a hurricane, you might get a loan directly from the SBA. But normally all they do is they back loans that are given by banks. So a bank might say, well, you're not credit worthy. You're not putting up enough capital um, for this loan or, you know, we don't know about your credit score or whatever. Um, the SBA will come forward and say, all right, well, if they default, we're good for the money because we're the U.S. government. And that's what the SBA normally does. So banks were actually making loans, using up their own capital to make the loans. Um, and in fact, many, many banks that were making these loans made too many loans and actually ran out of capital before the Fed set up a repo facility for the loans. But the SBA was just in charge. Again, it's just not a function that they ever had to deal with. It's like, how do we give away trillions of dollars expecting not to get paid back? Just not a function that they do. So that, that was a lot of a challenge here. And I think, you know, another like almost moral question is, you know, I was talking to somebody about this in terms of capitalism. Like one of the things that often pisses people off is that, um, you know, for a normal person, if they lose their job, if they lose their savings, you know, whatever, like they don't get bailed out. Um, but for a lot of corporations, it's like, you know, capitalism is meant to be survival of the fittest. Oh, wait, you screwed up. Okay, we're going to make you whole. Is that fair or not? And my view is that basically if a business, well, number one, if it's life or death, like, you know, just make the loan or just give the grant, like we can figure this out later. Like if you want to stop all fraud, make no loans, sure. But then you're going to have millions and millions of businesses fail. But there are some businesses that seem to be on the verge of failing because of government intervention. And then there were some businesses that seemed to be on the verge of failing because customer tastes had changed markedly, right? And the latter yeah. feels to me like much more of a capitalism thing. It's like, all right, you can't prevent anybody from failing ever because then that's not capitalism. Then it's basically you, you socialize losses, but you privatize profits. Like that doesn't seem fair. Like, oh, whenever I make money, I get to keep all of it, but pay some tax rate to the government. Whenever I lose money, oh, the government's on the hook. So like Carnival Cruise Lines, would be like, you know, nobody was stopping you in the early days of the pandemic from taking a cruise, but interest in cruises just dropped precipitously because who the hell wants to be on a cruise ship for two weeks when that seemed to be where all of the cases were breaking out? That didn't seem like a good idea. Whereas who wanted to go to the local nail salon? Um, you know, maybe that was much higher, but government action shut that down. And like disambiguating which one was group A versus group B was really tough. Right, because you know, airline traffic fell, it seemed primarily because of Group B, where that was just customer taste had changed. Like people didn't want to go on airplanes, businesses voluntarily stopped travel. Whereas, you know, Group A was like government says, you know, your restaurant can only operate at 25% capacity, but your restaurant only has a 10% operating margin. So 25% capacity when 75% is basically wasted means your, your restaurant is guaranteed to go bankrupt. So like I think that's the other hard thing to just kind of grok, like what was Group A versus Group B? Yeah. And in this case, I mean, you could you could see how all of the government shutdowns and also just additional regulation to manage it, first and foremost, were the biggest driver of kind of stress 
closures and challenges for the small business community. I mean, it was, it was, it was pretty tough. I mean, we got to some periods in March and April, and we can talk about some of the data where some industries were in some states were literally like 0% of their pre-COVID sales for two months. That is not sustainable um, versus, you know, other industries, which actually ended up thriving. You know, if you think about e-commerce, groceries, industrial supplies, and how those businesses were evolving versus travel, transportation, even health and beauty in a lot of states, they got literally brought down to 80% or worse in March and April and even beyond through the summer. And so, you know, I think the the challenges of government intervention really put a tough environment forward for these businesses. I mean, you know, obviously governments didn't do it without best of intent, but in some cases, um, you know, you could watch some of the changes and analyze the data and, um, come out with a different view of what you might have done as a government official. I mean, we should talk about that. We should talk about what happened and go through that if you want to pivot to there. Yeah, I, I think that because I, I guess when I introduced you, I, I mentioned the square background and the very important firm background now, but but not the fact that you're also on the COVID task force for California. So, I mean, how did the state, because this is such a complicated thing, right? Because, you know, public health, if you have a virus that I mean, imagine that the death rate from COVID was 99.9%. And you say, okay, uh, let's let people do whatever they want because we believe in liberty. Um, well, the problem is that, you know, virus being spread is like a negative externality in the economic sense. Like you might be somebody who doesn't mind dying, but like if you go spread it to a thousand people, it's like much worse than oh. secondhand smoke, right? So Can we stop there for one second? Sure, there, sure. There, so one interesting thing in the, in the data that... Um, was obvious early on was that um, literally health outcomes, so COVID outcomes drove commerce. There was an absolute linear relationship between the two. So as a government official, if you started and said, let me make the health outcomes better, you would see a correlation with improving commerce after you would after you would uh, see those improvements in health. And so that was first and foremost, completely logical for a governor to take a position, safety first, right? From understanding the commerce data. Right. Um, and then uh, from there, you did see variations, but I think no matter what, from March onwards, that drove everything and still does to this day. If you see, like we did in December, January, worst health outcomes, you'll see commerce declines. Right. And that kind of goes to that group A versus group B. It's like if people are sick or if people are afraid of being sick, it doesn't matter what the rules are or the rules aren't. Like people ain't going to do anything. Yep. Right. And, and then like, let me go from, you know, or let me describe um, what I saw, you know, um, there were three phases of um, kind of behavior in the United States over the course of the past year. I described the first phase as being driven by health outcomes. If you remember March, April, 
it was urgent crisis in New York, New Jersey, um, Washington State, where you saw an absolute scare in the population. It led to an immediate shrinking of commercial activity. And um, it there was a dichotomy between other states which were not feeling any of these health effects with those that had the most violent reactions early on. And it was completely obvious that you would see most states still at 100%, maybe veering down to you know, high 90s of commercial activity, while you'd see New York, New Jersey, Washington immediately fall. And fall, in some cases, they fell down to 20% of prior commercial activity. Then there was a second phase over the summer that I would describe as the, like a political phase. And that was where um, health activity was being politicized between red states and blue states, unfortunately. So you saw a lot of difference between um, commercial activity in both red and blue states that was uncorrelated to health outcomes. And so that lasted for several months where you'd see states that actually, or even regions that had strong health outcomes had very weak commercial activity. And I put San Francisco and the Bay Area in that category. And where I am drawing this reference from is correlating the New York Times COVID database, which is fantastic, with Google mobility data and commercial activity from credit card data. And then beyond that, also measuring, there's a company Explorium in Israel that has amazing data platforms that we ended up uh, looking at Explorium's commercial database as well. They have a lot of signals from external sources. And so the middle phase lacked logic and was unfortunate because you saw a lot of states have more commercial activity than they should have relative to their health data. And you saw places like Northern California, which should have been more open and weren't. And then that evolved to the third and final phase, which I would describe us in, which is more around economic activity correlating to health outcomes in a particular state. And it reached a more logical phase where even governors were whatever position they were publicly taking had some control of commercial behavior and consumers were driving their commercial behavior uh, based on what they were perceiving to be the health outcomes in their particular region. And so we're, we are at a very logical phase right now where you could almost see states on a linear line of behavior between where their health outcomes are and how much commercial activity are going on in the state. And that includes states like Florida, which allege that they're, you know, like more open and they are, but it, they're, you know, they're operating at the level that makes sense for their commercial activity. Um, and same for California. Yeah, and I think that's the hardest thing is just how do you how do you A/B test this, right? Because there's looking at data to find these correlations, um, 
but there are all sorts of other variables. I mean, like, like weather or like how close people live together and stuff like that, that sometimes is hard to capture. But I guess, you know, in a perfect world, how would you try to do an A-B test? Because in my mind, it's not just that commerce activity goes up or down. Like commerce activity is actually, in many cases, tied to health unto itself. Like during the financial crisis, the number of suicides increased dramatically because people that are losing everything that they ever worked for, turns out they get depressed and they, they, they do things when they get depressed. And that was obviously terrible. So there are other things that obviously can hurt people besides COVID. Um, and you know, it's a very, very complicated policy thing, but like how, I mean, I guess if, if you were in charge, how would you try to not just correlate the two, but make policy based on commerce or make commerce based on kind of health outcomes yeah. in real time? Well, interestingly, now I'm going to have to, I'll come back to your question, but like, because you had so many counties across the United States and the New York Times was doing such a good job kind of measuring what was going on county by county every day. Um, and the, the way, at least as I saw it, the way that the data was reported um, was as consistent as they could possibly make it. You actually had the best ability to do A-B tests across states. And so you could measure things like, to your point, well, if the weather is bad in certain counties and states, we'll then pick others and measure correlations. Um, and so, you know, if you believe that certain governors were not driving policy in a way that you felt was consistent with your values, you also could say, fine, don't, you know, exclude those five states. Let's look at another, you know, 45 other states and see whether we see the same kind of correlations. And so you actually were able to do it in a really deep and substantive way, particularly with a time series of how the data changed over time. You know, health and beauty would turn on and off in particular counties. And you could then go back and say, well, if you open up health and beauty. Now, how many counties did that happen in? Oh, great, 300. Now let me go measure in those 300 counties, did the incidence of COVID increase immediately after that decision happened? Yes or no? And it enabled you to have enough data over time to understand whether you could draw an inference as to whether a particular industry was driving COVID outcomes. And so, you know, I always took a position like, you know, I'm not a virologist. You know, I, I, I couldn't pretend to predict health outcomes, but I could at least understand, you know, if you open up indoor dining in particular states, is that actually driving a change in outcomes? And um, when we looked at it over time, what we ended up seeing at the end of the summer was that um, all commerce was only driving five to 15% of COVID activity. And I think BCG did an analysis, they released it for seven governors on the East Coast. And BCG showed that 74% of COVID activity was driven by you know, personal in-home issues. And so I think that's where you know, some of my personal frustration come in, came in um, because I felt like you know, I was trying to champion for these small businesses that that didn't have a data set with which to go present at a more national level. Um, but I felt like we had a view that we could say, like, not unambiguously, I'm not trying to overrepresent 
what was what what we were able to see, but it certainly was a a broad enough data set and a big enough data set that you could say, you know what, it doesn't look like indoor dining is actually driving these health outcomes. Um, and you know, and then people would get into issues like, well, were people wearing masks? Were they distanced? And with that, it's it's always a challenge to measure. Like you you can never get into that and say like, were the businesses actually following suit? But you have to believe that they were doing the best they could, and that shouldn't right. matter whether it's you know Best Buy and Sam's Club, the biggest of the biggest, which were always open, versus you know a small restaurant which has four tables in it. Yeah, and, and that seems like just the fundamental unfairness. I mean, obviously the virus itself and the people that are dying from this virus—that's the—that's the most fundamental unfairness. But you know, if you're a small business and you don't have money to go buy the plexiglass that's required and to change your ordering process and all of these things, um, the big businesses do. I mean, this is often one of the challenges with regulation is that it's well-intentioned, but the bigger you are, the more you can comply with it. The smaller you are, the more that you can't, especially when it's changing. Because imagine being one of these small businesses that just gets whipsawed back and forth around. Now you could be open. Now you can't be. Now you have to clean tables every five minutes with alcohol or whatever. Um, it's just very, very hard to survive. And I agree with you. They, they just didn't have an advocate and they didn't have the balance sheet. Like Chipotle is worth more money now than it's ever been in history, I think, looking at their stock price. Whereas like the, the local taqueria might be out of business because they just couldn't comply with all the rules. Yeah, although I do think the small businesses probably complied. I, this I have no way to prove it. But I, you know, just from talking to people, they were killing themselves to comply they were killing themselves to do whatever they could. And because they had more control over their physical space and they, as far as I saw, had this responsibility for it. And like, you know, it's their life and death. They knew they needed to make people feel safe. I found that the environment ended up being, um, you know, no better, no worse for small versus big businesses. I think the passion was there because of fear and anxiety over their own livelihood. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think they had a lot of frustration that they weren't allowed to be open when they, you know, watch their next door neighbor, a big box retailer be jam packed um, and knowing that they could keep their store or their restaurant safer. You know, there's that one case in LA, the one woman who showed her restaurant, she was practically in tears. No, I remember that. Yep. And then there was, there was the, the film crew that was yep. operating a quote unquote restaurant that wasn't a restaurant that was wide open. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, you'd see examples like that, that I think led to extreme frustration. And my, my recommendation was always to try to let people have the most flexibility to create the safety net themselves. And you know, key, like I, I, I advocated for masks. I advocated for social distance. I advocated for having, um, you know, space to make sure that your customers um, didn't feel like their personal space uh, was being impinged upon. But beyond that, I felt like too strict a regulation was going to be impossible to maintain over time. And if you needed to change it, to your point, the frustration was so extreme. Like, wait, I made right. my table six feet already. Now I need to make them eight. But, you know, like I already set up everything. And I think those things were incredibly frustrating to small businesses. 
Yeah, and I, I wasn't trying to imply that the small businesses weren't complying. It was more of they didn't have infinite funds with which to do these things, right? Yeah. So they, either you got lucky or didn't. Like somehow indoor dining in airports is fine, but indoor dining elsewhere not. And then you might think that's unfair. So it was this very bizarre thing where it made some people mega, mega winners. I mean, there were some small businesses and large businesses that did great out of this. There were some large businesses that did terribly, you know, Q Carnival Cruise Lines and the airlines and others. And then there, there were some that, you know, there were some small businesses that did terribly as well. They, they tried their best, but, you know, they, you know, it's just very sad for me walking down even like California Avenue and uh, downtown or like the other downtown in Palo Alto and the number of just like vacant places because these businesses just, they, they couldn't, they couldn't make it work. And there's nothing yeah. to do because my, my view is, I mean, I, I largely agree with you. Like my view is I always viewed this as eminent domain. Like, you know, the government, if they want to shut down anybody in the name of public health, I think they should be able to. What I don't like is this not compensating them part, right? Because the government could say, I need your, your house in the land on which it sits uh, to go build a highway. And I can say, no, I don't want to sell it. But the government could say, yes, you will. And I'm exercising my right of eminent domain. I mean, this yeah. goes back to English common law where the monarch, you know, everything was, you know, sovereign and the sovereign could reclaim it, but actually had to give restitution to the landowner. And it actually applies to businesses as well. So, you know, my, my main issue has been that, you know, what the government is taking away from many small businesses in the name of public health, which is a very good reason, is effectively solvency. And then the question is, like, how do you actually compensate the business for that? And I, I thought that would be kind of an interesting thing to talk about because, you know, the way that PPP worked, you know, it was hard to do because the government normally is collecting money from businesses, not sending money to businesses. So there, there was that complication. But I guess, you know, how do you do this, right? Because you could say, we're just going to give you the exact same amount of revenue that you as a business made every other month, um, as long as you pay all of your employees. But what if you're like the Halloween store? Like there yeah. is a Halloween store, right? It's like, okay, well, you know, October was a good month, but then like it all fell apart in November, but that happens every year. I mean, what, what do you think the right way of dealing? I mean, if you, if you agree that, you know, the government should be able to shut down in the name of public health, but like the government should make these small businesses whole, because if you have 30 million businesses that just disappear tomorrow, then employ, you know, tens and tens of millions of people, that's catastrophic. Like, yeah, what is, what is the right answer? It's almost half of the U.S. economy is like employed by small businesses. It's an extraordinary number. There are 30 million small businesses in the United States and 20 million, 23 million are sole proprietors. I think, you know, extending PPP is a good thing and getting that money out to small businesses. I think, you know, one of the things that's frustrating in PPP is the way that the dollar amount is derived. Again, this goes back to almost where I started around, like it was this construct of payroll. And I think there are two issues right now for sole proprietors. And I, you know, I see what Biden's trying to do in attempting to solve that by having this unique window. I, I'm not sure that's the right approach right now because they already had the window to begin with. Um, but I would change the way it's calculated so that sole proprietors are rewarded for their revenue and given the opportunity there because, and I would make sure, the second thing is, I would make sure that sole proprietors know that they're eligible. And I think that's one of the challenges that I saw throughout the multiple rounds of PPP is that 
a sole prop would say, no, 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 I don't have any employees. But in reality, they are the employee and they should be able to get funds for themselves. And it's not evident to them that they can get it. And that's where I would have changed the way the program works. And then the second wholesale change I would make now is I would let businesses open up. And I think we're at the point and we're probably at a, you know, where we know enough about distancing and mask wearing that in many states, having a retail store have higher density should not be a limitation given the way people now understand how to behave. And given the increase in the number of vaccines that are being deployed in the United States now. And so I would let businesses open so that they have a fighting chance for those that were in survival mode to try to win back their customers. Um, the one good thing, by the way, is that businesses, many businesses are, are above where they were uh, pre-pandemic. And secondly, um, we've had the biggest amount of small business starts ever recently. And so there is a regeneration happening where unfortunately we a lot of wonderful businesses fail, but we're also seeing a huge renaissance in the number of businesses that get restarted or started. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, I, I agree. And part of that is the, the capitalist thing that I was mentioning before, which is, you know, there are a lot of like those empty spaces in Palo Alto that I was mentioning. I mean, as long as people continue living and working in Palo Alto, um, the working part might be a question mark, but the living part I don't think is, then there will be new businesses that take their space. And hopefully, again, they'll, they'll have a fighting chance now that vaccines are out the door. And hopefully we're, we're, we're well past the halfway point, I would, I would expect on this whole thing. But if not, and, you know, we have to go through this again, you know, what, what should be done differently? And it's kind of everything from, you know, hopefully, you know, those that those don't actually study history are destined to repeat it, like, I think one of the reasons why it's important to have a postmortem on everything when everything is over is like, did these, like what worked and what didn't? Because ideally, whatever worked, let's do 10 times more of that, both on the health side, but also on the bailout side, on the business helping side, on all of those things. And things that didn't work, like we shouldn't do any of those. In fact, we should make sure that we know what those are so that we don't have this kind of window dressing um, that distracts from things that can work. It's an interesting question. And the whole postmortem thing is great. I love that idea. I think, um, you know, like some of my observations from being on the COVID task force uh, for Governor Newsom was um, first, when you're trying to solve problems for a huge number of people, it, it makes it a really hard challenge to do that. You know, like you can't just flip switches and expect things to work or not work. Like California in particular is a really complex economy. And what works in cities, even the difference between San Francisco, LA and San Diego is not completely universal. And what works there is not the same as what works in an agricultural economy, which is also a huge part of the state. And so I have more of an appreciation for the challenges of how hard it is to try to mandate policy from a top level. I think one of the challenges that I found personally frustrating was that even if you are the governor, you're limited to what local 
economies and, and local jurisdictions want to do. And school is a perfect example of that, where in many cases, the governor can't mandate that schools open. It's cities and in some cases, different uh, boards of education. And so even if you are trying to create policies that enable businesses to operate, you're beholden to local level officials and there's not much you can do about changing their mind. And so, you know, I think if I could go back and snap my fingers, I would have taken a stronger view towards some of these local changes where I felt like there was a policy decision about opening up, you know, schools in particular right now, like I would go out of my way to figure out how to make those things happen um, so that you could get kids back in school, you could get businesses back open, because I, I do think we are, um, we are at the point, particularly in California, where the state's um, COVID levels could withstand an increase in commercial activity in the, in the state to be in sync with other states that have more open policies than, than we do. You know, if you're in San Francisco, for example, you experienced a totally different COVID than 45 other states or 47 other states. Hawaii was an unusual one because of their travel restrictions. Um, uh, and Alaska was an unusual one. Um, but COVID in California was like so much more shut down. In fact, it was 22% more shut down than every other state in the country. And so it was just a dramatically different experience here. Now, some of that was smart, particularly early on, like, you know, some of those decisions you would repeat again, how they managed it. But I think in hindsight, you probably would have opened up more in the Bay Area and tried to manage LA in a very different way because LA was a really severe hotspot, particularly for the entire country. LA stood out as a unique hotspot. Right. Well, I think one other thing you mentioned schools. I mean, one thing that's obviously linked to small small, small businesses. I mean, not the not the sole proprietorships, but you know, small businesses that employ people. They have workers. The workers that have young kids. How do they go to work if their kids can't go to school? I mean, there are all sorts of cascading effects as well. And then you also have this issue of. I mean, it's not an issue per se, but I, I talked to a couple of small business owners about this, where um, you know. Interestingly, like many of them were concerned about too high stimulus payments to individuals because they were worried about actually recruiting people back to work. Um, uh -huh. It was yeah. a combination of like, if I can't, if I have this very loyal person, she's a waitress, she comes in, she can't come in because her kids aren't in school and she just got $1,400 and says, you know what, I don't need the money right now and I need to watch my kids as she should, right? Like that's the complete correct decision for her. But for the small business owner that needs workers, like paradoxically, you know, even though unemployment has gone up, it might be more challenging to recruit people back if stimulus payments are, and I hate to say too high, but too high from the vantage point of the small business owner and if schools are closed. So that's kind of another pillar of policy of like, wh what's the right thing to do there? Um, or like maybe did you see any data in terms of like business that's actually doing reasonably well, but is ironically having a harder time when unemployment is higher, actually getting people back to work. So where that became a um, extremely frustrating friction was very early on in PPP, 
And again, it goes back to like the construct of this program, this trillion dollar program where you have to keep people employed. And so here you are as a restaurant. At the time, you didn't know what, whether you were gonna be forgiven for these loans. So you took out loans, you kept people employed as the only way that you thought you'd get forgiven. And then the stimulus basically encouraged a lot of very small business employees to not work. And so it was a really hard hit that I, I don't think was obvious to people. And you know, I don't think anyone did it out of, out of malintent. It's not like people said, oh, this'll be great. But when you have a group of people advocating for more stimulus money, I think they're saying that with their heart and head that makes tons of sense. People have been hurt. Let's try to get more stimulus money in the hands of consumers. Yet then you have this really important push and pull of this constituency of small businesses who are saying, but wait, you just told me the only way I can get forgiven for these loans is to keep my employees on. And now you've given them the means to not be employed. And so that led to extreme anger on the, on the part of small businesses who weren't able to keep their employees. And um, I don't think that was obvious to people. And so you'd have to decide which type of policy you're trying to incentivize as to which approach you might take going back to your retro. Or if I were to recreate PPP, I probably would have driven it off of revenue of the small business, not how many people they employed. And I suspect if I, and, and potentially even given them partial loans and partial grants, not even full forgiveness. Um, and I think the small business community would have been open to that if they felt like they had guidelines that they'd know how to follow, or if they felt like they had a fighting chance to open the moment that it felt safe enough to open. And I guess, you know, that's part of the conundrum is that you can debate whether it is or it isn't. Right. Well, I mean, part of the challenge is PPP obviously stands for Paycheck Protection Program. Yeah. So it was very, very much zeroed in on like the way that people are going to stay employed is this money will get diverted to small business who will have to keep employing them. But the challenge is that, you know, operating margins or gross margins are like there, there are realities of business where if it turns out that my restaurant can't operate at all, like maybe I should shut down and that's actually the right thing to do. And then the stimulus funds should actually get diverted to people, right? The people that have lost their jobs, now they get paid as opposed to, I have a job for two months, but my job is to do nothing. So, or like the other approach, I'm sure you saw this, but in Europe um, where, you know, actually it turns out that even though many European countries are much older than the US, their infrastructure for dealing with and giving money to businesses is much, much better. But, you know, in, in the UK, I know, uh, I think it was 80% of payroll would get met by the government. I think France was 75 or 80% as well. So like the, the common standard was basically your payroll will just get made by the government for you to the employees. So that was another way of doing it without, you know, because I think another topic that we could talk about is like, you know, nobody knows exactly how much fraud was out there. Um, and if you had too stringent of a view on like, I'm going to investigate before I approve any loan slash grant, is there fraud here? Well, you can stop all fraud by stopping all grants, but then the economy would fall apart. So the it was optimized for throughput and speed. And then, you know, let's put people in jail if it turns out they bought Ferraris, which apparently some guy actually did, probably more than one guy actually did. 
Um, you know, do you have a sense of, of like what kind of fraud? I mean, you probably saw applications that didn't make sense, but you know, what kind of fraud or were people taking advantage of this and yeah. at what level? So I think we had a really um, unusual situation in that at Square, we had the smallest businesses on the system and we clearly did the smallest loans of anyone in the program. So we were helping mom and pop shops all across America and we knew them because they were already on Square. And so if one company were gonna have an unusually positive experience with regard to fraud, it would be Square, right? All of the systems for millions of merchants around the country are keyed into understanding signals that highlight fraud. So, you know, we were in good shape. Having said that, we did catch a few fraud rings um, with the SBA and, you know, obviously the attorney general's office or the office of, I think it's the OIG is going to investigate and pursue um, those that engaged in criminal activity. I think entities that had less knowledge of their customers certainly saw, you know, fake social security and EINs, um, you know, fake businesses getting started, fake documents, all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, I think the way the program was designed, everybody knew there was going to be fraud. You either get speed or, you know, you get the perfect system to your point. And I think the orientation of treasury was go for speed. And to be honest, I think that was the right approach. Like, I, you know, I, I, I would have erred on the side of speed as well. Again, I wouldn't have come up with a program that they did for PPP. I would have designed it differently, but speed mattered more than anything. And I, I felt the same way on stimulus checks, by the way. You know, if you think about the federal government, they have to send stimulus checks out how in the name of God do they do that through the mail? Like nobody actually thinks about the logistics of this experience. And companies like, you know, Square with Cash App and Chime were super creative at connecting into the IRS system and creating virtual DDA accounts so that those that did not have easy access to the banking system could use Cash App in order to get the IRS stimulus check. And I think that was a magical experience for those that are the most vulnerable consumers in America. And if I were treasury, I would figure out how to expand that program so that tech companies can take this position and enable those that are currently locked out of the banking system to have a free account that enables them to get access to things like unemployment checks and stimulus money like that should exist. And as of today, unemployment is not distributed that way, for example. And I think the government, I mean, we should talk about like the government's data systems too. But I like if I were the government, that would be one of the things that I would change immediately in order to make sure that they could fund digital payments to consumers as part of government stimulus measures. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Actually, I wrote a little post on that, which I'll share with you afterwards, just on, I call it the final disintermediation, which is, I mean, ultimately, the central bank can only be accessed by banks who are accessed by consumers. And there are many functions where ideally, this isn't calling for postal banking, 
because I think that's a bad idea. I think loaning money should be exclusively within private enterprise and capitalism. But if you think about how do I get money to the government or how does the money come to me? I mean, ideally every FEIN or every SSN is actually a bank account um, and that I could get funds from the government. I could remit funds through the, you know, to the government. I don't need a third party to go charge me and intermediate, but that's exactly how it works right now. And that would be really cool, which is, all right, you've got 30 million people um, or, you know, you have millions and millions of businesses that have a, you know, employee identification number. Why can't they receive money to that or send money to that in order to communicate with the government? And, you know, a lot is said about infrastructure in terms of improving highways or building high speed rail or all these things that you know, make a lot of sense. But there's a huge amount of ideally infrastructure that we could build around money. And it's not to solve this problem. But you wouldn't have had this problem if we had the infrastructure. No, oh, I agree. I mean, it's interesting. Um, Mark Gold, who was the chief operating officer of the San Francisco Federal Reserve, today got promoted, and he is going to run um, the. He's going to take on a job as like head of payments for the Fed, for all the Federal Reserves. And I think this is one of the challenges that they have to figure out, like how to federate accounts for businesses and consumers when unfortunately or fortunately the United States is very information shy. And so the idea of digital information numbers is, is not something that Americans are willing to tolerate. But even with the numbers that we have today, if we were able to access them and get real-time access to payments, um, there are so many use cases where you could see that being valuable. And in the absence of that, Companies like Square through Cash App provided a really valuable system to enable an automated bank account to consumers that needed stimulus money, but also didn't go to a bank and actually pay to have a bank account because it's still expensive today to have a bank account. And so I, I do think we have to figure out how to make that happen. There's no reason why it couldn't. I also think we could do it with SSNs, EINs, and potentially a number to help those that don't have SSNs, who also are, you know, a fairly um, important part of the U.S. economy and 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 are the most vulnerable and needing free access to money movement. Um, so I'd I'd love to see that happen. There's a lot of invention there, and I'm hoping that Mark Gould at the Fed will take this on with alacrity and just go for it. Um, because I think what happened in the past year showed the vulnerabilities that we have in just sending checks out to consumers in the United States. And, you know, it, it right. absolutely needs improvement. Well, and beyond that, it's, it's, it tends to be a regressive tax to people that are poor, because if you're rich and you have lots of money and you keep it in a checking account, well, the bank that's, that's actually the bank's source of capital to go make loans. They can make a lot of money on you on, on that interest margin. If you're poor, the only way for the bank to make money is on fees because you don't have that much money. And it's one of the things that actually concerns me is, as cash goes away, like if you look at the pandemic, everywhere that I go now actually says no cash. You cannot spend cash at this place because cash is dirty. It's true, right? Like you, you could probably get a virus or two from, from or more uh, from, uh, from touching cash or you know, handling cash. You don't have that with more digital payment methods, but you know if you want to get a green dot card, um, you'll you'll pay seven dollars and ninety five cents a month for the privilege of having a card. 
which yeah, is I not can't that... help myself. Everyone should use Cash App. <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm game with that too. But, but the point is that like, if you have, if, if you need to, if you're very, very low income and you need to send money, you need to get money, you need to spend money digitally, it's, most banks are not open to you. I which agree. is a whole, which is a whole other problem. You know what? Um, because it's, that that's the direction that things are going right now. Yeah, you know, you caught me on a good day um, because Square Financial Services finally reached its approval. Literally, it was announced at three p.m. So three p.m. Pacific. So you happened to catch me on a day when, um, you know, I'm thinking about what kind of invention could happen where you have an all digital bank, and. I think there are so many companies that have started that revolution around free access to bank accounts, free access uh, to debit cards, um, automated peer to peer payments that are free, instant access to money, um, and even um, you know businesses that could get loans 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I would hope we are just at the beginning of the fintech revolution of banking where consumers and their ability to transact for free kind of comes to fruition, both for consumers and businesses. Um, But I, I, you know, I'm hopeful that that will happen in the next few years with a lot of the fintech unicorns that are out there and a lot of the up and comers that are really evolving into unicorn status. I'm pretty excited about it personally, even though I realize that's not the topic of this conversation, but um, you know, given the approval today, there's so much that can be done. And I'm hoping that things like unemployment and stimulus in the future can be streamlined or even hospital payments, insurance payments in order to make it a great experience for people. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, just because we've only got a few minutes left, I mean, I thought one way to to kind of end this is on a prediction, if you will, of where, I mean, let's just say, so two things. One is when do you think the economy gets back to normal? And then what does normal look like? Because there still are going to be winners and losers, like, you know, maybe travel comes back, maybe it doesn't. Again, just assume that things do go back to normal. What does that new normal look like? And when do you think that happens? Yeah, so um, I... I actually think um, many businesses are at the pre-pandemic level already, and they have come back. And that's largely because of the industry they're in or because the creativity and ability to pivot on behalf of small businesses. I think there are still large swaths of the economy which are uh, underperforming, travel, transportation, oil and gas. Um, And so... Um, I can't begin to predict when all of the industries will be back to where they were pre-pandemic, but I do foresee 2021 being a fantastic high GDP growth year that swings the economy back very strongly forward um, for the year. Like, I think it's going to be a, a very good year. Um, at least in terms of aggregate aggregate levels of GDP. Now, the you know coming back to pre-pandemic level, you see a lot of women get excluded from the workforce because of um, you know issues associated with kids in school or not being able to do their work 
because of their family situations. And so I do think there'll be winners and losers. That's an example of, of a huge group of people who have, have not fared well um, in the pandemic. And so, you know, I think it'll be years until everybody comes out of that. But I, I do think in general, the economy will be doing incredibly well in 2021. I certainly hope so. Well, yeah. Jackie, this was great. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was great. It was fun to catch up with you too. I'm glad we could connect. It's always good to talk to you. And, and hopefully we'll do it again soon. Awesome.